Good evening to all and welcome to Academy House. It's lovely as ever to see a full house, but that's no great surprise because Roy Foster, this evening's speaker, is very well known to many people in Dublin. And I'm not going to waste much time on the introduction because you all want to hear him speak, um, except to say that he is a member of the Royal Irish Academy and a very good friend for many years who has helped us in many ways. And we are delighted that he has decided to use the Academy as a venue to speak about his most recent book, Vivid Faces. Um, the format this evening is very simple. Roy is going to talk for 25, 30 minutes. After that, he and I will have some conversation about some of the topics that have come up in his talk, and then we will open the uh, floor. We will open it up to discussion from the floor, so you will have time to ask some questions at that stage. And copies of the book, as you've probably seen, are available for sale outside at a special price. But now I'm just going to hand you over to the person you really want to hear this evening, and that's Roy Foster. Thanks, Mary, and my thanks to the Academy for lending us this lovely room in this great Irish institution to which I'm very proud to belong. Um, I just want to talk, not for very long, about how this book came to be um, and to put it perhaps in the context of not only Irish ideas and the Irish commemorations that have been preoccupying us, but perhaps in, in a wider context as well. For some years, I've been thinking about unanswered questions about the Irish Revolution. And I have to say, I was thinking about them long before um, the decade of commemorations became to be called what it was. The questions that preoccupied me when I taught this subject and sometimes wrote about it were pretty basic. Why did it happen when it did? Who made it happen? And why did it turn out such a conservative revolution? With this audience, I don't need to run through the events from the, at the time, astonishing uh, rising of Easter 1916 through the maneuverings afterwards to try and rescue the Home Rule Bill that had been passed but put on ice. And finally, the drift into a guerrilla war which produced eventually the treaty which split um, so many friends and families asunder. Why it all happened when it did might seem to have some obvious answers, and the sort of answers I was brought up with were the answers that I slowly became, began to query. The idea often received was that after centuries of recurrent rebellions kept going through the 19th century by the Fenian flame, success came at last through a combination of dedicated activists and a cultural revival of nationalism around the turn of the century partly the result of perseverance, partly the result of the immediate crisis of World War I. The second question, why did it turn out as conservative as it did, is perhaps less obvious. But the answer seemed to be that the revolutionaries were committed to freedom from British rule, but not to social revolution. And they came from devoutly Catholic, often from rural backgrounds, inimical to social radicalism. But I wasn't sure that these answers were sufficient. For one thing, the rising at the time, when you go back to people's reactions, came as an astonishing surprise to many people, many well-informed people. And also, the people involved were often the people you might not have expected to be involved. And the moment at which it happened was also something I wanted to examine. I was very struck by a speech that John Redmond, the leader of Home Rule, delivered in Wexford in 1915, where he exhorted his audience to be what he called a sensible and truthful people and realize that Ireland was now a free country. We have emancipated the farmer, we have housed the agricultural laborer, we have won religious liberty, we've won free education, we've laid broad and deep the foundations of national prosperity. Finally, we've won an Irish parliament and an executive responsible to it. A year later, the Easter Rising how and why, if what Revan said was true and as widely accepted as it seemed to be, how and why. And in approaching the question, I've become struck more generally by the changes that have come about in the way we try to understand any revolution, 
especially I think after 1989 and the upheavals in European history then. We're now thinking in terms of paradox, in terms of nuance, in terms of what doesn't change. We're interested in questions of psychology, ethnicity, communal conflict, masculinities, and in challenging patriarchal values. We're perhaps thinking now of revolutions as happening as much because of temperament as because of ideology. And applying this to Ireland made me think about things rather differently. Associated with this, an analytical idea which seemed to me to make more and more sense as I looked at the individual lives of those who made the revolution was the idea of generations. The idea that when a group of people see themselves as a specific generation, defined against the beliefs of their parents, and become prepared to take a radical stance to put these ideas into action, that this can be as powerful a motor of social and political change as class conflict or economic immiseration or the things we used to pay so much attention to before the query put over the Marxian view of history um, over the last decades. And reading the work of people like Karl Mannheim on generations and how and when they conceive themselves and how they are, as he put it, made, not born, I began to try and look at the lives of the people who made the Irish Revolution and the way they bonded together, the way they came often from middle-class families with a stake in the system. And they began to look more and more like young people in 1780s Paris who called themselves the party of the future, or the student revolutionaries in 1905 in St. Petersburg, or perhaps the Red Brigades in the 1960s, or possibly the Bader Meinhof people. They even began to resemble some of the middle class people who embrace jihadist beliefs today. The more vividly, the more I read about them, the more vividly they emerged as young, radical, adversarial, and often irreverent. If some of them became martyrs, they certainly weren't saints. And this reflects the way that ideas about economic immiseration or abstract ideological motivation seem much less influential now when thinking about how people take arms to make a change. We're more interested, at least I became more interested, in how and when a whole generation conceives of itself as different, as entire, as ready to claim for itself the right to extreme action. How they bond, as I've said, how they reinforce each other, how they set themselves in contradistinction to their parents. How conceptions of sacrificial action take hold and how far religious impulses, widely defined, are part of this. And finally, what does it mean for revolutions and for revolutionaries when they realize that they've got the future wrong, when they've acted in anticipation of a future that turns out to be very different from the one they've envisaged, the one they have suffered for, and the one in whose name they have inflicted suffering. The last psychological question which preoccupied me was how far does historical change require a dedicated body of activists who are conscious that they're living in a time of flux and that their own lives and their impulses and what's happening inside their heads reflects this larger reality. I wanted to recapture the way revolutionary impetus happened inside heads as well as on political platforms and on the streets and eventually on the barricades. So I've spent several years, about over six years, looking at the people involved, not just at the events, though that's the events are the climax of this book, but I've been looking at what you might call the pre-revolution, the people who saw themselves as definitively different from their parents, who wanted to make a change in the world. The title of the, of the book, as you will see, comes from Yeats's great poem, Easter 1916, which begins, I've met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter and desk among gray 18th century houses. Later in this poem, he says, we know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And I think what I felt was it just wasn't enough to know they dreamed. I wanted to know what they dreamed. How do you find this out? Well, there are a surprising amount of diaries, of letters, 
even of unpublished manuscript autobiographies, and of course, an enormous wealth of contemporary journalism. There's also the Bureau of Military History uh, witness statements, which are an extraordinary range of retrospective capsule autobiographies. They are retrospective. There are problems with them from that point of view. They're, they're got together from the mid-40s, but they still are a treasure trove. And through this material, I've been profiling the kind of young people who made the pre-revolution, bonding together through radical politics, through student societies, through agitprop theatre, through educational innovation, through journalistic co-ops, through Irish language enterprises, and also through psychological affinities, through homosocial bonding, through sibling relationships, and through love affairs. They're all sustained by the hope of a different future, different both from the structures of British government in Ireland, but also from what they saw as the collaborationist and materialist and unidealistic world of Irish autonomy offered by the home rulers. And different also from their parents' world. For some of them, and you'll find them in this book, the Gifford sisters, the Plunkett children, the Bartons, Muriel Murphy, Mabel McConnell, for some of them, it's a war against their parents, as well as against the British state, against what Geraldine Plunkett called the hellhole of our family life. It's not the kind of phrase one regularly associates with Irish revolutionaries. The picture on the front of this um, book, taken at Cahill Brewer's funeral, shows Muriel McSweeney having torn off her hat, which is quite a thing to do at a funeral, showing her shingled hair in 1920. I think this carries a certain message. And over and over again, researching these people through their own papers, I found voices coming through which clicked, which made a very definite impact. Reading the unpublished diary of Liam de Rochester for 9 June 1905, I find him writing this young organizer of radical societies in Cork, working as a night school teacher. He writes, I often wonder whether there's been an actual objective change of affairs or of general ideas in Ireland during the past decade that makes things seem different to me now from what they did three, four, five years ago. Or is it a change of ideas within myself the inevitable change from boyhood to youth, youth to manhood, both are working. I am changing, and things around me change. And that's where you get the idea of the change with, with inside the head, between the ears, which I think is, is vital to find. Or you could look at the young middle-class Pierce Beasley, born Percy Beasley, Irish middle-class family, father edits the Catholic Times. They live in a Liverpool suburb. Just about the same time, in 1904, after he as a row with someone in the Bootle Gaelic League. He writes in his diary, I will assert myself, I will make my presence felt. Life is full of fields for me. Here I am a man with such an education, such wide knowledge, I have no value or esteem, while any fool or churl or clodhopper is able to look down on me. Can I endure it? Shall I be despised? Shall I live a poor, weak, puny life? I who have strength and will and a fire within me which will not rest. Around the same time, he writes, the first section of a fortunately never published autobiography, which is called My Boyhood Early Deeds, which gives you an idea. <laughs> What's his answer? His answer is to go to Ireland, which he fervently idealizes. He only knows it from childhood holidays. But he writes, I shall wake up the Gale, appeal to him, trust in him. And he actually does this. He becomes a Gaelic League organizer. The diaries morph into Irish more and more. Um, he becomes known to the police. He takes part in the 1916 Rising. He's searching for his version of authenticity. So is Muriel Murphy, a daughter of the vastly rich brewing and distilling family in Cork, grows up in a huge, gleaming white mansion in Tivoli. And when she is propagandizing for the Republican cause in America, she gives an interview where she says, and again, this sent a prickle down my spine because it was exactly what I was thinking of. My parents are not quite like myself. I think I'm rather characteristic of a certain section in Ireland. The younger people have been thinking in a way some of the older ones have not. They wished to belong to England. They were well off and comfortable and thought only of themselves. That's dying out now. The younger members of such families are Republic. I am only characteristic of a great many who were brought up, shut up at home. This idea of women shut up at home keeps, keeps recurring as well. Alice Milligan refers to herself as an internal prisoner of my own family. Geraldine Plunkett, the one who refers to the hellhole of her family life, recalls how at last when she got to medical school, 
I had got away from the shabby, genteel, professional people I despised and into the circles of young men and women up from the country. Their manners and accents were strange to me, but they were alive. They were the coming generation, that word again. So this world of what you might call radical Edwardian Ireland, this slate of interests that bound many of these people together, not only nationalism, included suffragism, vegetarianism, secularism, anti-vivisectionism, and much else. The enemy was often religious patriarchy, as much as the British government. A radical generation emerges who make Yeats's poem concrete. And as I say, for many of them, the enterprise is about more than nationalism. The change within the personality, which Liam de Rochester pinpointed, is to be a change in society too. It's to be an assault on inherited hierarchies, notably patriarchy. And sometimes it's to be an assault on religious authority too. The secularism of people like Rosamond Jacob, Hannah Sheehy Skevington, Patrick McCartan, Dennis McCullough, Bulmer Hobson, and Pierce O'Hegarty is striking. Of course, there's the Fenian tradition of keeping the priest out of politics and denying the church's authority to pronounce on rebellion. But in the case of people like McCartan and O'Hegarty, it's, it's something more. O'Hegarty's letters to his old friend McSweeney in the early 1900s, O'Hegarty's in London, and he writes back to McSweeney and says, it's only when you come to London as an Irishman you can see some things clear, and one thing is you must become anti-clerical. He doesn't get very far with McSweeney, but he is not untypical, much as he tries to explain it. McSweeney's wife, Muriel, as I say, the product of a rich Cork merchant prince family, educated by posh nuns at St. Leonard's on Sea, becomes a militant atheist, and in her letters always refers to the Holy Roman Capitalist Church. <laughs> well, these were the sort of voices that I wanted to present in a sort of group portrait or a study of mentality. The great, Victorian, the great historian of Victorian mentality and culture, G.M. Young, once said that what you had to do was to read until you could hear the people talking. Thanks to the wonderful holdings and wonderful staff, of UCD archives, the National Library, the Military Archives, and other treasure troves, thanks also to a three-year research grant, I was able to reach that magic point of reading till you hear the people talking. The question then was how to organize this. And I tried to do it via activities, starting with some general reflections about generations and how they're made under the ge generic title Fathers and Children, which is a nod to Turgenev's great novel of the previous generation. Turgenev's character, Basarov, is somebody who resembles many of the people I was discovering. In the opening chapter, I also tried to introduce as many of the cast as possible. My idea was that through the rest of the book, which would be organized thematically, the reader would keep on encountering the same people, but over and over again in slightly different guises, rather as one does in life as one grows older. And therefore, they'd build up a sort of multi-dimensional character, again, like reading a long novel or roman fleuve. In fact, one of the recent reviews said reading it was like going on an ocean cruise with an extraordinary bunch of people whom you keep meeting in intense circumstances and then it ends and you know you'll never see them again, which, which I loved. I thought that was exactly what I wanted to do. The people I'd concentrate on would inevitably be people who kept diaries, who wrote long letters, who produced copious journalism. The great stroke of luck was that there were so many of these and that they covered a surprisingly wide range of types and characters. So in the book, we'll meet, let's say, Pyrrhus Beasley, he of the um, self-inflationary diary. First, as this self-important and rather histrionic late teenager in Bootle pouring out his soul. Later, we'll find him in Gaelic League at summer schools or the theatre manager of an Irish-speaking troupe, or rather unexpectedly, the seducer of a priest's sister at a summer school. In the final chapter, we'll find Beasley again, cropping up as the litigious guardian of the Michael Collins cult, proselytizing a certain version of the revolution for posterity. Or we'll find Liam de Rochester, first of all, sensing that moment of change in his 1905 diary. Then we'll encounter him in the maelstrom of little nationalist clubs and societies which blossom in the lanes of Cork. Later still, we'll find him as a volunteer organizer begging Roger Casement to send him guns. We are thirsting for rifles. And then we find him one of the people clustered around Terence McSweeney through the agonies of his hunger strike. Finally, in my last chapter, we find de Rochester 
um, in, in, in his 60s, going through his diaries in the mid-1940s, and recording in a little marginal note how intolerant he was as a young man. Very moving. Or we have the irrepressible, enthusiastic, charismatic Bulmer Hobson coming out of Belfast, full of ideas, um, determined to reinvigorate the Fenian tradition through the Dungannon clubs, later preaching defensive warfare to the volunteers, then spending the rising under a kind of house arrest and written out of history thereafter. Or we find Mary-Kate Ryan studying and teaching in London, sending hilarious, reflective, didactic, often deeply cynical letters about life and love to her beloved sisters, later becoming a lecturer in French at UCD, holding court in the DBC Café on Sackville Street, moving from her habitual scepticism into nationalist commitment, entertaining circles of young admirers in her flat in Ranelagh, and then emerging with her new husband, Sean T. O'Kelly, as a representative of the provisional government of the Irish Republic in Paris during the peace conference. Those are just a few of the lives threaded through this book. I could add Sean T. himself, who again is one of the regular recurring members, Rosamond Jacob, the Quaker radical from Waterford, P.S. O'Hegarty, Sean McDermott, and Patrick McCartan, but there isn't time, you'll find them all in there. The idea, though, is to try and weave a sort of social and cultural history of their lives and activities by organizing the book into what they do and what they think, starting with education. The first chapter is called Learning, and it's not just about the well-attested influence of Christian brothers and their nationalist conditionings. It's also about progressive ideas at St. Enda's and Mount St. Benedict. It's about the use of drama and language and legend and a world of homosocial bonding which will sustain after school too. For women, there's certain convents which are radicalizing some presentation um, establishments, Loretto and Stevens Green, Dominicans and Eccles Street. For everyone, there's those Gaelic League summer schools, vitally important, not just for learning the language, which many people admit in their diaries they find very hard to learn, but for breaking down barriers. If you're a Protestant girl with nationalist opinions like Cheska Trench or Rosamond Jacob or Mabel McConnell, it's an opportunity to make connections and friendships with people you wouldn't normally meet. And the opportunities are often romantic as well as political. Something of the same is true for university education, the student culture of the NUI. There's a slightly LNH, Castle Catholic element, much mocked by people at the time. Um, but there's also a much more radical edge. There's an interest in parallel radical cultures in other universities in other countries. The comparison with the St. Petersburg radical generation of 1905 is fascinating because a lot of work has been done on them. There's a great deal of material. And the studentiest vote culture of St. Petersburg is rather like what's happening in UCD around about 1910 to 1916. Outsiders like Griffith, or Hobson are in and out of campus all the time radicalizing. Then there's the world of agitprop theatre. The theatre, as Martin Estlin once said, is where a nation thinks in front of itself, and this is very true of this time. We think of the Abbey as the great focus of early 20th century Irish dramatic life, but political theatre is a different sphere. It owes something to traditional nationalist melodrama, it owes something to the pageants and lantern shows which Alice Milligan exploited, but there's also avant-garde groups around the Plunker children, around Thomas McDonough, around the Hardwick Street Theatre up on the north side, putting on Chekhov for the first time in Dublin, as well as experimental stuff by Emer O'Duffy and his friends. And there is Gaelic theatre touring the southwest, organised by Pierce Beasley again, who gives wonderful description in his diaries of pushing hand carts with props up and down mountainsides um, in Cork and Kerry. And they write plays with titles like The Revolutionist, McSweeney, Pagans, McDonough, and O'Duffy's When the Dawn is Come. And then there are personal relationships. Because one site of resistance against parental values was to do with the drama of loving. And here the world of diaries and letters is fascinating because it is one way into an intimate world that is so hard to recapture. Later, some revolutionaries like Todd Andrews and Mary Perrault declared the revolution left little room for love. But the diaries of Rosamond Jacob, of Pierce Beasley, of Roger Casement tell a different story. So does the correspondence of those Ryan sisters, discussing how men should have a bit of the devil in them and confiding about their love affairs. Rosamond Jacob frankly records her sexual longings for young men 
and remarks that her feelings are far more like a man's than a woman's. She says, I don't want him happy if I'm not around. I'd far rather he was unhappy if I'm not able to have him. Choosing a man younger than me is more like a man than a woman. She also is extremely interested in reading and discussing um, contemporary, very avant-garde sexual psychology, Havelock Ellis, Geddes, Freud. Beasley, as I've said, recorded his affair with a priest's sister at Ballingiri, hiding her in his bedroom every night. Casement's adventures are too widely known to need comment. And several of the revolutionary generation wanted to reconfigure the traditional Irish idea of marriage. Rosamond Jacob and her friends, the Farringtons and Ned Stevens, discussed whether fidelity was essential, and as I say, read Freud, whose ideas appealed greatly to them. They analyzed the possible sexual content of their dreams, and Stevens became unpopular for constantly telling his Sinn Féin companions why and how they were sexually repressed. Um, Hannah and Frank Sheehy Skevington wanted to pioneer an equal, rather semi-detached idea of marriage, symbolized by hyphenating their names and sleeping in separate rooms. Hannah would later give her son and his wife a copy of Mary Stopes's book on birth control as their wedding present. Female couples like Kathleen Lynn and Madeleine French Mullen were not uncommon in radical circles. As Lynn Hunt has written about the French Revolution, the idea of reconfiguring and, and resisting traditional patriarchal hegemonies was a vital part of the whole radical enterprise for many young people who felt, as Alice Milligan had put it, internal prisoners of their families. And then there is writing. How far is literature a shaping force in revolutionary consciousness. This is the great period of the Irish literary revival, exactly these years, 1890 well, to 1922, if you see the publication of Ulysses as the great climax, which coincides with the foundation of the Irish Free State. Yeats was always very keen on that confluence. But the power and importance of writing for the revolutionary generation lay in other spheres. They were, in fact, very suspicious of Yeats, whom, whose circle they did not approve of. They were affected by the polemical Fenian historicist mode of Alice Milligan's or Casimir Markovich's polemical dramas. But above all, it's journalism. It's the journalistic initiatives of Arthur Griffith. It's the Dungannon clubs and their papers. It's the various feminist collectives staffed by very influential women journalists. And Joyce's Aeolus chapter in Ulysses, where the wind of news blows through Dublin, is very much a leitmotif in this. Finally, there's arming, there's the volunteers, there's the variety of voices and sources, all reflecting this mounting desire to take arms, even just to demonstrate uh, civic identity, but it will always lead to more. The bachelors walk killings after Hoth, after the Hoth gun runnings, run through everyone's life. Liam de Rochester hears of it in London and wants to go out and strike the first English person he sees. Pierce Beasley is touring with his actress in Kerry when the news comes through to him and they can't bear to go on stage. Rosamond Jacob hears about it in Waterford and characteristically reflects that it's very good news, except for the people who are killed, as it'll have a radicalizing effect. And then the war comes. And there's one wonderful reflection I found in the Bureau of, of Military History Contemporary Documents where somebody describes walking up, up um, O'Connell Street or Sackville Street as it was with Sean McDermott in late June and a boy starts crying stop press and um, he picks up the paper, the friend um, Geroth picks up the paper and says, uh, Sean McDermott says, oh what's this? And Geroth says, oh just some old duke shot dead in the Balkans. And McDermott's whole demeanour changes and he says, look at this is it. Those fellows will go against those fellows. And he, he spells it out like a domino game and Gerald has no notion of what he's talking about, but it is the moment. And then there's the revolution as it happens. And that's when the book has to switch to narrative, but it is still concentrating on the same characters. Some, like Richard Mulcahy, Joseph Plunkett, Sean McDermott, play a leading part. Some are executed, others are interned. And then the sea change in opinion can be charted in their correspondence. Again, a wonderful letter from a local Wexford priest in the summer of 1916 to Mary-Kate Ryan. People are now trying to whitewash their past opinions but these days, lime cannot be had for the asking. The final chapters, Fighting and Reckoning, deal with the fallout between old friends, the antipathies, and the way that new people appear, often from a different tradition from the pre-revolutionary 
radicals. Finally, the last chapter is called Remembering. And it reaches forward, sometimes as late as the 1960s, to try and show how the revolution is remembered, made iconic, obscured, how reputations are made and forgotten, how disillusionment sometimes takes over. And again, there are key quotes from the people involved. Dennis McCullough writes to his old comrade and brother-in-law, Richard Mulcahy, in the 1950s, we lived in dreams always, we never enjoyed them. I dreamt of an Ireland that never existed and never could exist. Not that I think I was wrong in this, which is, I think, an interesting coda. And Mabel McConnell, Mabel Fitzgerald, married to Desmond Fitzgerald, who before the revolution has been a firebrand, who has written marvelous series of letters to her old employer, George Bernard Shaw, saying how she's bringing up her son in the traditional hatred of English. He's, he's only going to speak Irish. He says the word Sassanach with hatred in his voice. Shaw writes back, my dear Mabel, as an Ulster woman, you should know that if you teach your son to hate anyone except a papist, you will go to hell. He then, <laughs> he then tells her, bring him up a good international socialist, which is the true meaning of Catholic. Don't waste your time with the Irish language. People who own English, control the world. Forget the Irish revival. It was invented in Bedford Park, West London, which of course I hit it. With Yeats. It's a wonderful, wonderful correspondence. But much later, in 1944, she writes to him again, and she says, I've changed my opinions completely since my youth. You can't trust the masses with education. I don't believe the people who are, in, who are uneducated should have the vote. All the people want is dog racing, tabloid, everything. It's just this, this reactionary voice coming out, and you wonder if if, if Shaw, reading it, remembers that in that early pre-revolutionary correspondence, he told her, you are just an educated woman trying to become a peasant. <laughs> so the book's about, really, the contradictions that bristle through the Irish Revolution. But I want also to remember these people in their youth. Bulmer Hobson invited to go and join the Malkahis to discuss the past in the 1950s and 60s in their house in Rap Mines couldn't face it. He wrote, the phoenix of our youth has fluttered to earth such a miserable old hen that I've no heart for it. But, he reflected, looking around him, I wonder if anyone nowadays has as much fun as we did. It's an engaging reflection, as is Patrick McCartan's, looking back on the revolution from the vantage of the 1920s. McCartan had an extraordinary life. He was a medical student. He went back and forth to America on Fenian missions. He went and tried to deal with Maxim Litvinov, the Bolshevik foreign minister, in 1921 to get the Bolsheviks to recognize the platonic, as it was then, Irish Revolution. And he wrote in the late 20s, I was quite happy in the mountains of Tyrone, and I would probably have married some publican's daughter who had been a few years in a good convent and could scream the songs of Araby or some such atrocity at a piano. But the revolution, he said, separated me from the life of a flourishing vegetable. And he realized this when he'd been on his expedition to America and then to Russia and came back home. The houses and streets in the local town looked very cold and deserted on Christmas Eve. Those in the village looked worse. My mind was made up. It was Dublin or New York. It's that kind of moment of enterprise and those kind of expectations of change that helped fuel the revolution and that were, I think, so often disappointed after it. Discussing this book with the historian Matt Kelly last week, he rather threw me by saying, are you saying that 1916 should be seen as the end of something instead of the beginning? And thinking about it, I suppose I am. Thank you. Okay, uh, I mean, that was wonderful. And I think you've really, for those of you who haven't read the book, you've really, Roy, you really captured it, I think, magnificently in, in all its dimensions. Um, I've read it, I read it slower than I would normally read it, which is a, is a compliment, because I, I really enjoyed it. And I suppose what I would say is, the happiest parts at the beginning, it does become sad at the end. So I, so I think that's, you know, it, 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 and I think you, you really, summarize that very, very much. I suppose in terms of questions, um, was the disappointment, uh, the letdown inevitable? How much of it is due to the Civil War? The Civil War is essential. The Civil War is, is the beginning of 
the trauma of disillusionment which runs right through it. And the Civil War is the reason why everyone wants to try and remember it their own way, because they also want to clarify that they had made the right decision, whether it was against or for the treaty. So the Civil War colors the way everyone remembers everything. Um, but there is also the fact that disillusionment is part of any revolution. Yeah. And that revolutionaries become founding fathers. And when they become founding fathers, they are fathers and mothers, much less so in this case mothers. And they are reacted against by the next generation. Again, less so in Ireland than in other countries. But the way that revolutionaries themselves calcify into authority figures is, is an old story. I mean, look at France, look at Russia. Mm. In Ireland, we tend to see it rather differently. And in Ireland, of course, there is the what I've called in this book the Catholicization of the revolution. Mm. So the anti-clericalism of the McCartans and the Hobsons mm. and the McCulloughs mm. is very, very pronounced. Mm. When the fighting begins, when the Catholic Church decides, especially after conscription, the threat of conscription, to go on to platforms with Sinn Féin, everything begins to change. And I think the, the identification of the traditional faith and fatherland with this revolution is something that many of the pre-revolutionary brigade would just not have expected. Rosamund Jacob writes around 1919, it is becoming now that everyone expects if you're a Sinn Féiner, you have to be a Catholic. And she, mm -hmm. you know, this is not the kind of world that she or her friends had, had worked for. She, of course, is from a Quaker background, mm -hmm. but Bulmer Hobson, uh, Dennis McCullough, Patrick McCartan would all have said exactly the same. Mm -hmm. They, of course, are from the North, so they're very, very conscious of the need for the revolution not to become a Catholic revolution. Mm -hmm. But in rhetorical terms, it effectively does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways you, you can take this. First of all, I think if, if this version of the pre-revolutionary years was widely sold to younger people, I, I think <laughs> the attractiveness of, of, of 1916's generation <laughs> would, would just soar. <laughs> what are you manufacturing here? <laughs> uh, yes, I hadn't thought of myself as setting up as an opponent to Mr. Bruton, but I suppose um, I'm... I am trying to make it look like more like other revolutions mm. in its in its initial conception, mm. Mm. and I think that that makes sense. Mm. Um, but it does become then something very specific mm. afterwards. And one thing that these people I think are very often uh, wrong about is that they think they can bring the North along with them. Yeah. And for people like Alice Milligan, Bulmer Hobson, they clearly have a great vested interest in doing this. But one thing 1916 does is make it absolutely certain that some form of partition will happen. Mm -hmm. Some people may think that's been certain since 1912, mm -hmm. but it's certainly there's no mm -hmm. question of it not happening after mm -hmm. 1916, especially when the Battle of the Somme follows um, the, the Easter Rising. And this is something, again, that's a matter of enormous disillusionment for the pre-revolutionary mm -hmm. people who had, who were incredibly uh, energized by the 1898 centenary of 1798, mm -hmm. who saw 1798 as the proof that you could have a non-sectarian mm. uh, Protestant and Catholic fighting together for independence against Britain, and that this was what they could revive. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's not a very original thing to say, many of us have been saying it for mm. years, but I think 1898 is a key, key mm, moment. Is, in this. Yeah. Is, yeah. And 1916, in a sense, ends that dream too. Is, yeah. And I mean, while you do have quite a number of Northern figures that they are and some of them from from Protestant background, they you know they, yeah. they, they're all renegades to their tradition and truth, aren't they? Uh, well, not Dennis McCullough or McCartney, who's from the borderlands. Mm -hmm. They are from families with Fenian yeah. associations. Yeah. No, but I mean, I mean, but, those from a union. I mean, yeah. you know, Mabel, I shall. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mabel, her father is a manager of Craig's Whiskey mm -hmm. Distillery, right, well, and yeah. they're very much Malone Road, haute mm -hmm. bourgeoisie. Um, Alice Milligan, ed educated in Methody, you know, mm. very, very much from a bourgeois Protestant background. Other figures who are more like cultural entrepreneurs than direct revolutionaries. F.J. Bigger, mm. you know, with his mm. sort of nationalist mm. researches mm. and his mm. parties for Fianna mm. at his houses and everything. He also is from a very is, yeah. Protestant mm. unionist, unionist background. Um, but many of them, of course, have their fling at radicalizing Belfast through things like the Ulster Literary Theatre. And then they think, well, sod this, and they go south and have more fun and meet more 
people then get on with. Bulmer Hobson is a classic example yeah, yeah. of that. So I think that in some ways uh, Belfast is stony ground for yeah, many of you. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the big surprises of this book in many ways is uh, if you got a kind of a very very caricaturish, simplistic history of Ireland uh, in in 19th century Belfast apart, you'd get a story of the West, uh, rural Ireland, the land, the peasantry. And what you've got here is a story that is very much Dublin, Cork, um, yeah. Belfast and Waterford, as you said. Um, and how you get from there to the men of the south or to the West, you know, to, 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 to West Cork Brigade. Uh, how can you, you know, there are some figures who tie the two together, yeah, but there aren't but that many. There aren't, that's a profound question and a very good point. There's, the revolution's happening in the city, mm. or, or at least the revolutionary mentality is being bred in the city. What I have tried to do in this book, and I do it in one of the first chapters, is create a kind of geography of radical Dublin, the little streets mm. radiating around Nelson's Pillar where radical groups meet and often share, swap around in, in, in meeting rooms. Um, the, the, the Gaelic League uh, meeting places like on Stad. Um, further out, middle-class suburbs like Ranella and Rathmines, where streets like Belgrave Road and Oakley Road are full of nationalists. Again, supporting each other, living in and out of each other's houses, all the rest of it. There is a kind of, and around Clambrassel Street, Michael mm -hmm. Hayes' marvellous unpublished autobiography mm -hmm. describes growing up around Clambrassel mm -hmm. Street, South Circular mm -hmm. Road area, and the kind of places where people met above mm -hmm. pubs to discuss mm -hmm. radical politics, and places his father, who was very fiendish, <coughs> took him. And of course, Sing Street, Christian Brothers, as the absolute mm -hmm. epicentre of all this. So what's happening to these people, especially through student life, is they're being radicalised, and through newspaper shops. Mm -hmm. Bureau of Military History, Witness statement has a wonderful description of the various shops you could go to into Waterford where you know you could buy Sinn Féin or nationality and, and the ones that you would just walk by because you know you get a stony stare if you ask for it. So I think there's a big urban thing going on here, but the, the rhetoric and the romance of the search for authenticity, which I mentioned, is of course going to the country. Yeah, it's what the Russians call Narodnik. Mm -hmm. It's Mabel McConnell going, Mabel Fitzgerald going to live near Bentry, you know. Mm -hmm. It's 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 finding purity in the West. Mm -hmm. And they all do this. And the, the great thing about the Gaelic League summer schools is they allow you to do it but just for a while and when the weather is good. <laughs> and so they they do that. And for other sort of social reasons as well, which I mentioned. Um, then the rhetoric of the revel, the remembered rhetoric of the revolution is not urban, except for the mm. great photographs of O'Connell Street mm, sure. in flames. The rhetoric is exactly, as you say, Sean Keating's paintings, Men mm. of the South, it's the, fl it's the flying columns, it's mm. the brigades. It's, um, but this is, in its own way, I think, uh, a kind of um, exaggeration or indeed misrepresentation. Mm. In another way, however, it reflects something else that's a shift when the fighting begins, and people like Michael Hayes note this very carefully, unknown people emerge. Nobody's known Michael Collins mm -hmm. before the fighting mm -hmm. begins. Well, the Plunkets have because he works for them. Mm -hmm. you know, they pay a salary, but otherwise there are all these new, new people arriving. Who is this devil era? You know, they don't know. Mm -hmm. he, he didn't used to come to Arthur Griffith's lunches in the um, um, Irish farm produce mm -hmm. shop. You know, he, he wasn't around the UCD societies. He's, he's representing something different. All the more so are the tough young men with guns mm. from rural Fenian-inflected backgrounds who have a much more faith and fatherland view of the revolution than the intellectuals. Mm. And P.S. O'Hegarty is one person who feels wrong-footed by this, which is why he writes such strangely, I think, almost psychotically um, um, dis discomforted stuff about how the revolution actually happens. Yeah. But others who react less extremely also feel this as well. Yeah. The 1916 figure that comes through most strongly in this is McDermott. Yes. Uh, and it, it's interesting, you know, because he, he's the one that, that really, really emerges yeah. as, as a person. Uh, is it, is it just because of his, his connection with Min Ryan or is there more? To, or is, I think is he's, there very, more? he's very charismatic. Mm. He's famously handsome. Mm. He's, you know, he's a heartthrob. Mm. He's, he's funny. 
he's humorous. He's a he's a self-made man in the way mm. that many of these people are. You know, have have you have you ever been to the house he grew up in? No, I haven't. It's a no, tiny cabin. It's beautifully yeah. kept and preserved, actually, on a windy hill mm. in the on in, the border. Yeah, yeah, the, mm -hmm. the border, and and really a very very poor mm. rural background. Mm, yeah. But he educates himself. He comes to Dublin, as anyone with any sense does, and he has a very good time. Mm. Um, he's very good at, at putting newspapers together. He's very good at managing them. Mm. And he has this enormous charm, which mm. everyone, men and women, fall mm. for. Um, and the few letters we have of his have a wonderful insouciance about them. Mm. And he's just a very attractive figure. He's also very young. Mm. And there's a heartbreaking account of Min Ryan's, which I quote at length, yeah. which actually yeah. she yeah. gave in a newspaper interview in the 50s about going to see him in his cell mm. where he cuts mm. the buttons mm. off mm. His, his, his tunic to give his keepsakes mm. to people and, and shows how he's rationed out his woodbines to see he'll have you know, a mm. fag for every sort of 10 minutes before he, he's, he's executed. And then as mm. she leaves, he says, we never thought it would end like this. It's a very, very mm. moving account. And in, in much of what he says, he comes through as, I think, one of the more attractive figures yeah. of this he does, yeah. era. Yeah. And then finally, I think women are the stars, actually, of the book in many ways, uh, you know, because, mm. because I, I mean, were you surprised how strongly they came through? I was and I wasn't, because when I last really dealt with this era, it would have been in Modern Ireland, which mm. was written yeah. a hell of a long time ago. And there wasn't the the great um, sort of accumulation of some very brilliant women's history mm. that mm. had been excavated and written mm. since then. Um, but when I came to read this, I had actually my colleague Senia Pesetta was writing her That's marvelous okay. book on yeah, Irish which, nationalist which women. Is, which is great, yeah. yeah. And she shared a lot of stuff with me and I shared mm. stuff with her. Mm. So there was that. But starting with Margaret Ward, lots of other people mm. have since the mm. late 80s. Mm produced a great deal of stuff. Mm. But also there's the fact that I was dealing with people, I was led to people who kept diaries and wrote letters. Mm. And women had the time or had been denied opportunities to do anything more interesting than, than writing letters and keeping diaries. So they do. And the correspondences between women, mm. like the Ryan sisters, mm. the diaries of people like Rosamond Jacob are mm. very copious and very mm. full. And therefore, they're there. At the same time, you just look at the record and you look at the number of women who serve on committees, you look at the way that women are active in Sinn Féin, you look at the, women's the specific women's organizations in Yen and Aheron and, and, the, and the journalism they produced. Yeah. It was, I suppose, as a, as a Yeatsian, it was educative for me to find out that Yeats's, the women whom Yeats put in his sort of great frieze of mm. muse-like mm. figures, Maud Gonan to mm. a lesser extent, Constance Markovich were far more active as journalists mm -hmm. than they were as beautiful love objects. Mm -hmm. And I think this isn't untrue mm -hmm. of, of many people. So I think the cover, which my publisher, Simon Winder, spotted that photograph, we were going through photographs mm. and said, that's got to be the okay, cover. Yeah. And it hadn't struck me, but when I saw it, I just thought, yeah. absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And of course, Markovich's house, housekeeping was <laughs> to not be yes. yes. <laughs> Well, that's feminist art. Yeah, well, well it's OK. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, should we open to the floor sure. at this stage? Yeah. OK. Um, there, there are microphones, so just please put up your hand and wait. Uh, yeah, there's one up here, uh, Rebecca. Um, yeah, I wondered if you um, had any correspondence between siblings who were on opposite sides. Like, I know that Ernie O'Malley had a brother who was in the British Army whose uniform he used to go into the castle and yeah. get guns or something. So I just wondered, did they have any like discourse at all about that? That's a good question, and I have to say I didn't. I came across a lot of siblings who reinforced their, their commitments, and often it's a very gendered difference. Like the Gifford sisters, there are six Gifford sisters, and they're all nationalists, very active nationalists. I mean, two of them marry Plunkett and McDonough. And they have, I think, four, I may be wrong, brothers. The brothers all stay sort of buttoned-up Rathmines unionists, and I don't think there's much coming and going between them. Then you have the Barton siblings, Dulcibella and Robert Barton. You know, he's a British Army officer. Her father is a dyed-in-the-wool Tory Wicklow landowner. But they, again, 
support each other and they're very close and their cousin Erskine Childers of course is also part of it and they, they, they enable each other I think to move away from their parents values by, by, by reinforcing each other. Um, Rosamond and Tom Jacob who are both Sinn Feiners, Rosamond is one of the founders of Sinn Fein in Waterford and Tom Jacob her brother is, is also in it. The Farringdon siblings, two of them become communists afterwards but they begin as Sinn Feiners and I like your question. I like the thought of finding connections between siblings who still disagree but can still communicate. But Liam de Rochester, his diary is fascinating. Um, I'd assumed he was an only child. His father died. He was young. He writes about a lot about his mother. About, you know, 10 years into these copious diaries, I find he has brothers. But they're all in the British Army, so he never refers to them. And he says, when we, when we meet, it is as if we are strangers. So I think there's maybe more evidence for siblings who disagree but don't go on communicating. But there's plenty of evidence for siblings who enable each other as a reinforcement to, to try and re-envisage a different world from that of their parents. The Plunkett children, very good example as well. Yeah. Okay. Yes, this question over there. Um, how did those who remained radical relate to the new state? I, I know, for example, uh, Muriel McSweeney essentially went into exile. Yeah. What about the others who remained radical, so to speak? Well, people like Louis Bennett um, sort of remained a socialist and trade union organizer all, <coughs> all her life. Hannah Sheehy Skevington, the same. They used to meet, there's a group, I mentioned this in the last chapter, um, a group of women who had been, and Grace Gifford Plunkett is another of them, who had been very active and who had felt that they were sidelined um, afterwards had a sort of regular luncheon club where they used to meet and they called themselves the optimists which is heavily <laughs> ironic and their letters to each other are anything but optimistic and you know when when de Valera began, uh, as uh, as people like um, 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 sorry the name has gone for me but several historians have written about how women tried to uh, combat or to complain about uh, de Valera's constitution in 1937 and they have a very conscious sense that to them this is a betrayal of what they had fought mm. for or agitated for before 1916. Muriel, you're quite right, leaves. She lives in Weimar, Germany. She then moves to Paris after the Nazis take over. She has another child. She never marries again. She becomes a committed communist. Uh, she returns to Ireland for certain causes. And in spite of her extreme Anglophobia, she ends up living in London quite a lot. Um, she turns up actually in the Dublin Housing Action Committee in the 70s. You know, and sometimes you get these echoes forward of these old radicals who, who are determined to still look for change wherever they can find it. They seem to be, well, I say they're more women than men. Ernie O'Malley is very interesting too in terms of revolutionary disillusionment and the addition of his letters Broken Dreams is, I think, very good mm -hmm. on that. Um, McCartan goes back and forth between America and Ireland before mm -hmm. finally returning to, to Ireland. Runs as president in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. um, writes marvellous letters always, uh, but is essentially profoundly disillusioned with what has become mm -hmm. of, of the country. Mm -hmm. So some stay, some go, um, but they don't lose their faith by and large, uh, Mabel Fitzgerald notwithstanding, and I think in some ways she's, 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 a <laughs> she's a, perhaps an extreme example. Uh, I'm just wondering, um, do you think the, the famine had any, any influence on the rising and what happened around that time, 1900s, do you think the famine had any influence? I kind of wonder what's the main complaint? The famine is part of the historical uh, argument, you know, that Britain will never govern Ireland fairly. And so to that extent, it's there. Uh, but I find 98 and the, you know, mm. the pitch caps and the half hangings mm. and in the, in the rhetoric of the Irish nationalist story seems to be more emphasized than the famine. It comes in, mm. but it comes in as one of a litany, a rhetorical litany of of, of injustice. Um, there might be more to be said if one was looking at the backgrounds of what I've just referred to as the hard young men with guns, mm -hmm. 
who, who, who take over the fighting. They may well come from homes and communities where the memory of famine is much more proactive. Mm -hmm. The people I'm dealing with in this, you know, when to be young was to be very heaven mm -hmm. era of mm -hmm. Edwardian radical Ireland are, as I was saying earlier, very often from urban backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, and they, one of the more attractive things about them is that they look forward rather than back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. there's one over, there's two over there somewhere, yeah. Do you think, do you think in 1916 would have happened if, or happened because of the First World War, or if the First World War hadn't happened, that we wouldn't have had 1916? You put me on a spot because I would have given you a different answer eight or nine years ago, before I began working on all this. I mean, when I wrote Modern Ireland, I very much saw the First World War as the essential uh, kind of fast-forward mechanism that helped revolution happen. And so it was when you think that it was planned with German aid and that it was very much a Fenian, Fenian belief that if you had if Britain was in an external war, you had to attempt a rising. But the more I've studied the mental world of pre-1916, the more I think that there were enough people committed and radical and devil-may-care enough to make some sort of revolutionary gesture. That actually, although the war provided the presenting conditions, I suspect, in fact, I think, though this is, of course, counterfactual, there would have been an attempt at a rising without it. Probably it would have been in totally different context, which is what, where the Ulster crisis would have ended, which is one thing we can never know. But you know, when you look at it, when you look at the two rival paramilitary organization set up from 1913, mm -hmm. in spite of the crazy ideas of some nationalists that they could, you know, fight on the same side against Britain with the Ulster Volunteers, the whole logic was that there would be, and it was already happening, there would be clashes between the Ulster Volunteers and the Irish Volunteers. Ireland wasn't that far from civil war um, before August 1914. Mm -hmm. And I think the rising that didn't happen, so to speak, would probably have happened in that context rather than in the context of war. But the more I've immersed myself in the writings and thinkings of the pre-revolution generation, the more I think there would have been some kind of of, of rising. Um, thank you very much for your analysis. I, I really enjoyed it. It raises for me the question of the extent to which the rising and the subsequent um, war of independence could have been as much a projection of the need of that revolutionary generation for a kind of drama, you know, the, the military drama, which gave a point and a focus to what had been developing among them. The outcome, if, if the revolution had not happened that particular way or so violently, the outcome might not have been all that much different if you look at the, the long run and what happened at, after the end of the Civil War. Yes, I think yeah, I think there's a lot there's a lot in that. Um, I think that the the idea of change coming through violence is something that's happening all over Europe at that time. And European historians who work on the generation of 1914 would think very much like that. Um, there is also I like the use of the word your use of the word drama, because. It is a self-consciously theatrical enterprise. 1916 is presented almost like a play. Uh, when Joseph Holloway sees the first copy of the proclamation stuck with flower paste to a lamppost, he thinks it's a playbill. When Constance Markovich is marching with her citizen army from Liberty Hall, somebody thinks that it's a rehearsal for a play. It's funny, the language of drama, of agitprop drama, sort of pulses through all this. Um, and Revolutionary intentions are made clear from stages, uh, theatre stages, in a way that when you read what's, what they're doing seems extremely clear and obvious. So there is a sense of theatricality, a sense of drama, a sense of presentation. I also think the one thing that drives people into, young energetic people into these kind of gestures is boredom. That's why I love that Patrick McCartan quote about the life of flourishing vegetable. You know, you want life not to be boring. 
And this is one way of ensuring that it won't be, um, especially when you're young enough to think you can change the world and when you aren't shackled with dependencies of mortgages and children and so forth. Uh, so I think that those impulses shouldn't be forgotten about either. And I think that those impulses also help explain why the extremely uh, bourgeois and rather repressive and highly Catholic and respectable nature of the Irish Free State, which was in some ways a very deliberate enterprise on the part of Cumann why this was particularly bitter for these people who had searched for various forms of liberations beforehand. Um, we'll take one more question. There's, 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 there's actually, we'll there, there, there's one here. There's, there's one here to the right, uh, the blonde lady, and there's one at the back. Okay. There's, and then there's one at the back. We'll, we'll, we'll take those two and no more. I think, I think at that stage we'll, we'll move to more general conversation outside. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just you talked about Piers Beasley from uh, Liverpool, from Bootle, and I wondered about the involvement of other um, young people from Irish emigrant communities in other British cities, in London or Manchester, um, bringing a, you know the urban thing from it. You know, we were Ireland was agricultural, perhaps Britain was more urban. Did they have an impact yeah. coming in? That's a very good question. Actually, <laughs> preempt something I'd meant to say. Actually, in in response to your question about would the revolution have happened without the war. Um, a flood of young Irish emigres returned after 1914 uh, because they didn't want to be conscripted. They didn't feel an identity with the British war effort. They tend, lots of them tended to congregate on a farm owned by the immensely rich Plunkett family at, at Kimmage called Larkfield, which the Plunkett children ran as a mixture of a sort of armed camp, military commune um, and bomb factory. And lots of these returned young Irish guys were there and they were drilled into, into actually quite an effective uh, section of those who fought in 1916. The um, George Plunkett took them in to fight in 1916 and they were emigrants. There's a wonderful, returned emigrants, there's a wonderful autobiography by one of them, Joe Good, um, which, okay. which is a terrific source. Um, and this is, I think, symptomatic of a wider, of, of, of a wider thing. Um, Pierce Beasley isn't the only person who finds his Irish identity through proselytizing Gaelic values in England. Finon McCullum is another one who, who almost single-handedly gets the Gaelic League going in London mm -hmm. and will come back and will become uh, a revolutionary activist in, in um, I think, Cork and Kerry. Um, there are several such figures. Arto Brian is mm -hmm. another of them. Often like Arto Brian, often like um, um, George Gavin Duffy from very well-off middle-class Irish background. But again, this, this, this search for authenticity and excitement will bring them back to Ireland, which is becoming in these years like a crucible of radicalism, uh, which again is such an ironic counterpoint to what it becomes afterwards. But you're absolutely right. The, 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 um, the passage between Ireland and England and the back and forth, and actually in another way, People like Pierce O'Hegarty, people like Mae McConnell, people like Michael Collins go and work in England and often become even more radical there and then return to Ireland. Uh, there is a passage of ideas, as well, Senia Pesetas and other books have shown, with the suffrage movement. English suffragists are very interested in what's happening in Ireland in terms of suffrage agitation. And there's this, this traffic, this cross traffic between radical elements in, in both countries. Okay. There was one question. One, I would take the whoever was first down at the very back. Uh, there. Uh, yeah. um, there. Okay. Mr. Foster, can you hear, everyone hear me? Yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Listen, the, all the mention the names you mentioned in your book, these were all people who really they did not lead lead a mass movement of the people, like O'Connell did in the 1820s and the 1830s, like Parnell did in the 1880s. Parnell winning the winning the land of Ireland for the people of Ireland, radicalizing the farming community, no longer socialism, no longer communism, but conservatism. And another point I'd like to make is this. The whole question of so-called so success of 1916, the success of 1916 came later, roughly around 1917 with the threat of conscription. The threat of conscription is the core 
value to which the Irish Revolution was a success. Uh, Irish Catholic physical, physical force nationalism. Uh, the, the killing of, uh, of the leaders, of course, was a factor. I'm not denying that. But the real core of the, the making 1916 the success was the threat of conscription, which was very, very real. It wasn't introduced in Ireland. It was in England. They were all looking for more men to go out and be slaughtered on the Western Front, 1917 and 1918. Okay? Well, if you read my book, you'll see I say exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, as to the mass movement thing, revolutions are very rarely made by mass movements. Revolutions are made by disciplined minorities, often from privileged backgrounds. Look at the Russian Bolsheviks. Look at the French revolutionaries. Uh, what tips a revolution into success is usually, I think, the organization of a disciplined minority against an apathetic majority, and, um, or, or, or a majority who, who's, who's seen as played out, as finished, as collaborationist. Look at the Bolsheviks versus the Mensheviks. Look at the, at the um, mountain of the Jacobins versus the Girondins, and look at the Irish revolutionaries of 1916 to 1919, which I think is the moment when things become extreme, um, as opposed to the home rulers. Um, I think that this is a, a fact of history. Well, I think on that profound note, uh, we will call, call a halt to the more formal proceedings. Uh, just to remind you that there are copies of the book for sale outside at, a, I think, a very good price. I think it's 20 euro or something remarkable like that. Uh, and Roy, I think, will be available to talk to people and to sign copies. And we, we can 